When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to CLE Rocks, the music podcast from the birthplace of rock and roll. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review on the podcast platform of your choice. Now, on with the show. During the second half of 1991, bands like Soundgarden, Alice in Chains, Mudhoney, and Pearl Jam were generating a buzz out of Seattle. The music world was beginning to take notice as the band that would become the biggest of the bunch was about to explode. This is the story of how Kurt Cobain and Nirvana made their way to a small music club in Cleveland in October 1991, performing in front of a few hundred people weeks before Nirvana became the biggest band in the world. The buzz surrounding Nirvana began with Bleach. The album, released in 1989 on Sub Pop Records, sold a mere 40,000 units in the first two years after its release. But critics and fans who had been following the emerging Seattle music scene saw something in the punk-influenced three-piece. Photographer Bill Kage was in Ohio in 1991 when he saw Nirvana live in Cleveland. We were just big Sub Pop heads, and so we knew about Nirvana, and Bleach came out, you know, uh, it was a couple years before that, um, and we love. I mean, I just loved the heck out of that and um my friend was in like the sub pop singles club so you'd get all the seven inches of things and you know just the, the uh stuff that wasn't being released on albums but i mean we loved the heck out of bleach he even he named his dog bleach <laughs> i guess it, it it was just it was the roughest like catchy music that you could find i think it was like it was so kind of raw and visceral but at the same time just like full of hooks and full of catchiness On September 16, 1991, Nirvana kicked off its biggest tour yet in Seattle. The release of the band's sophomore album Nevermind would follow on September 24th. Just two weeks into the tour, the band would arrive at Cleveland's Empire Concert Club. The show was part of a series of small club gigs Nirvana continued to play as airplay increased on MTV for Nevermind's lead single, Smells Like Teen Spirit, something the band seemed mostly unaware of, says Nick Soulsby, author of I Found My Friends, The Oral History of Nirvana, and the book Cobain on Cobain. It shows how strange an event it was that the entire tour they're on that October in the U.S. is still these tiny venues because the mechanisms of the industry haven't caught up with the fact that this is becoming a massive phenomenon. So the venues are are genuinely not in tune with the kind of scale of audience that Nirvana suddenly has. But it's that reality that no one, I think, saw it come in. There are things that could be said to have foreshadowed it. There's a long tale of alternative, underground, punk-influenced bands and Seattle bands as well, who were being signed to majors and had major label albums coming out in the year to year and a half before Nevermind. There's there's quite a lot already going on. 
but none of them become this kind of, you know, multi-platinum selling global event. Nirvana's rising star made for a unique environment on October 10th. Some were there at the Empire Concert Club to see what all the fuss was about. Others, like photographer Matthew Fanciana, had been on board with Nirvana since Bleach, but was now seeing his favorite indie band sell out a venue in a matter of minutes. The show was packed. It was wall-to-wall people. The only album had only been out for like two weeks at that point. And it was, we were shocked how many people were there. It was a big deal, but we had seen other Seattle or self-op bands on tour and there were like 20 people at these shows. So I was shocked to see how many people were at the show. Nirvana's show at the Empire Club opens about as inconspicuously as you can imagine. Drummer Dave Grohl bangs away before bassist Chris Novoselic jumps into the baseline for Queen's Another One Bites the Dust. The jam lasts just a few seconds before Kurt Cobain introduces a surprising opening number. This song was written by a band called the Vaselines. They're from Scotland. They're really good for me. But there was a method to the madness, says Soulsby. The Cleveland show, they begin the show with Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam. And this seems like quite a deliberate phase. There's a, a phase after this where they start each show with a guitar version of a piece of classical music. And it's literally because there's been always surges when they open a gig. So crowds immediately go in wild. So they deliberately start with a slower and calmer piece of music just to kind of get the audience under control. And then they start to ratchet up the pressure. That's a very strange thing. There's certain phases where they will play certain songs in certain positions or finish in certain ways. There's other times where they're trying to control the mood in the room. So there's a, there's a lot of intelligence behind what they were doing and when they were doing it. It wasn't just a case of these were their favorite songs at that moment. There is a bit of that, obviously. But there was also a desire to make the experience of an audience uh a particular way. Um, later on, you can see when Cobain is unhappy with an audience because he he will punish them in funny ways. He'll do things like not play Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, there's a show where he teases that song repeatedly but never plays it. So he's, he's deliberately withholding from the audience the thing they want. So, yeah, this isn't just a sort of thoughtless outburst of energy there is musical intelligence beneath that. Cobain's introduction of the Vaseline's Jesus Wants Me for a Sunbeam would mark one of the few times during the show the frontman would engage in banter with the crowd. In fact, Novoselic would do more talking, which would be a trend throughout Nirvana's career, Cobain being a reluctant rock star thrust into the spotlight when he'd much rather fade into the background. The reality of the band were they were very honest and on-the-level kind of people. There wasn't some sort of um public image versus private image they 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 were they were the same people on stage as off etc so the thing i most noticed and it was funny that this remained true when i did the 
Cobain on Cobain book, which was collecting interviews with Kurt Cobain, um, the main thing I noticed is this this sense of quite a quiet guy who there's all this energy on stage. Then there's Kurt sitting quietly in the back of a room, uncomfortable with a crowd or not necessarily putting himself forward or speaking up. Um, there's an awful lot of uh, Christ Novoselic almost kind of shielding Cobain from the attention. Christ is a much more gregarious character at the time and in many ways much more the public face of the band. So when I did the interview book, you see it quite overtly that Kurt might pop up in an early interview when they interviewed mainly as a group. Chris would actually dominate the airtime a lot of the time. Then Kurt would have something specific he wanted to say and would come in with that piece would say what he wanted to say and then step back again. That seemed to remain true in the interviews that lots of people have been very lovely encounters with him, but this certain distance, this certain degree of privacy, um, a certain shyness to him as a character. The first of its own songs Nirvana played during the Empire gig was Aneurysm. The song was a B-side to Smells Like Teen Spirit, but never worked its way onto a proper studio album. Aneurysm was written in 1990 and recorded during Nirvana's first session with new drummer Grohl. It was around this time that Eddie King Roser, guitarist for alt-rock band Urge Overkill, first saw Nirvana perform live. I'd seen them play at the Uptown in Minneapolis when, when they were out for Bleach, and it was just another band that was playing. I remember, remember thinking, you know, 99% of the guys come through here cannot sing. The one thing I remember about this band is they've got a guy who can sing. And it was that I didn't even really register that fact. And, and only sort of later, I was sort of like, when I heard the record, I'm like, oh, it's that guy and he can sing. That was the thing that definitely carried Nirvana over at the top from from very first impressions I had is like most singers, frankly, you didn't want to sing, hear them sing. They were either delusional or they were up there because somebody had to do the singing. Nobody really wanted to. You just pick, picked the guy who would be willing to do it. And... uh there was Nirvana. It really was different because it was obviously somebody who had a gifted uh, and had a really consistent. He, he he sort of had worked out his signature sound. Urge Overkill was one of two opening acts at Nirvana's Cleveland show. New York City band Daz Damon was the other. Singer-guitarist Jim Walters remembers running into Nirvana in New York City that summer. We knew a bunch of the guys in Nirvana. We knew um, Dave Grohl from uh, when he was in this band Scream from back in the day, and we had played a gig with them, I think, in Amsterdam. And myself and a couple of my roommates had this big sort of like loft-style apartment in Brooklyn, and we would have these big parties on Eastern Parkway 
and we had one one night and um like a bunch of the you know it was like a scene a bunch of the guys from sonic youth and people in bands we knew and nirvana happened to be in town i think they were remastering or mastering um nevermind and we saw them we were like how's it going guys you know and they're like oh yeah we're gonna like tour and we're like oh yeah us too and they were like even from when they came out there was always like a buzz about them like everyone always thought they were kind of like a special band um kurt was definitely like a unique character i mean i didn't know him super well but you know knew him a bit and he was definitely kind of operated on his own frequency he was a really unique guy um i don't think anybody could have predicted what happened but i think Everyone thought if there was any band out of this whole bunch that's going to be successful, they probably would have picked them. Nirvana was indeed on the verge of making it, thanks to Nevermind, though fans at the Empire Club would have to wait until four songs in to hear one of the tracks from Nirvana's new album. The band's performance of Drain You began with Nova Silicon vocals before Cobain takes over. Expectations for Nevermind were initially modest for both Nirvana and its new record label DGC. However, as MTV continued to play the video for Smells Like Teen Spirit seemingly non-stop, both the single and album would rise up the charts at an unprecedented fashion. More reviews, all positive, poured in. During the years that followed, Nevermind would be hailed as a seminal album, responsible for sparking a new rock renaissance. Nevermind is the perfect combination of everything that would make someone want to buy an underground record but with a lot of the values and shine that people look for from a mainstream record it had the promotional mechanisms behind it it had the production values it had the kind of big i guess i could compare it to guns and roses appetite for destruction a lot of people bought guns and roses first album because of sweet child of mine when my my aunt owned it and she would never listen to it because she didn't like most of what the band stood for. But that one song was their big pop moment. Nirvana, a lot of people buy Nevermind because of Smells Like Teen Spirit being a perfect hard rock pop slash punk song. And it manages to cover all those things. So so it's all there. Nirvana would have been a big phenomenon in the underground whatever year they came out. I think there's just this special moment where the world was ready for something to change, where there were enough people had come up into the radio stations, the magazines, TV stations, etc., who grew up on underground bands, that suddenly it was possible for them to get a mainstream hearing. And that maybe wouldn't have ever happened before. The majority of material played during Nirvana's show in Cleveland came from Nevermind and Bleach. In a way, Smells Like Teen Spirit was an afterthought at Nirvana's Cleveland gig, performed seventh in a set list of 20 songs. Stories have been told about how Smells Like Teen Spirit was planned to be just an appetizer from Nevermind. The marketing team at DGC saw another track as the potential song that could break Nirvana, remembers Urge Overkill's Roser. Back then there was a 
whole system with MTV and the, the, the labels would try to get a, a song on MTV. And the way that the people that at backing Nirvana and the label were thinking, well, we're going to put out Teen Spirit, but the, really, the real big hit is going to be the next one, Come As You Are, which I think they maybe had done the, I don't know if they'd done the video or whatever, but that was going to be the big song. It was kind of a last-minute thing because it was kind of recorded at the last minute as well, Teen Spirit. So nobody knew it was going to take off and be sort of the biggest song. Come As You Are would be part of a string of singles that would cement Nirvana's instant legendary status alongside Lithium and In Bloom. But in typical Cobain fashion, the band chose to close its Cleveland gig with Territorial Pissings, a raucous album cut from Nevermind. It was awesome. It was total energy. The crowd was going crazy with every song. Um, Kurt Dage dove into the audience, so he did. He dove into the audience and was carried uh, by the crowd uh, to the back, kind of by maybe about 20 feet out, then back to the stage. Um, and it was just, I feel like the show went by in a blur. We knew we saw something special that night. Nirvana's Cleveland show would mark one of the final modest showcases for a band that was approaching superstardom. Two nights later in Chicago, Lyle Hansen of Das Damon noticed a major change. But when we got to Chicago and we played the Metro with Nirvana, that's when we knew it was over because uh we've played the metro before and we've played chicago a bunch and it was always like a good show for us playing chicago was always great and we played that show i remember crickets and but i do have a friend that i've met recently you know over the years who was a young person at that show and she just said to me yeah we were just standing around waiting for nirvana to go around and that go yeah. on and that was the vibe of that point felt like, oh yeah, they are on a different level now. The experience was much of the same for Urge Overkill, who would rejoin Nirvana during the European tour in November. By that point, Nirvana had become the biggest rock band in the world. Teen Spirit hit, you know, it was just like people could not control themselves once they heard the few, the beginnings of that song. didn't matter what country you were in it was instant insanity it was clear that everybody knew all the songs on that record by the time we had got to europe and people were singing along and it was it was just like it was almost like the 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 mayhem was almost beatle like for fans like fasciana seeing nirvana just days before the band would explode all over mtv feels almost surreal it was definitely shocking to see it was a weird time because there were, in 91, if you look at the albums that came out, we were stoked about every band that came out that we couldn't believe that um, Pearl Jam, like Pearl Jam's record, Soundgarden's Bad Motor Finger, like yeah. we were all in on the grunge in Seattle scene. So to us, these bands, I, it's kind of a weird perspective, but in a way, these bands were already rock stars to us. Um, but then it was shocking to see the album taken off um, when they played Saturday Night Live uh, was a big deal. And then the music magazine started coming out. 
I was like, oh my God. And then, yeah, we realized like, holy we were there. Nirvana's newfound fame would fall squarely on Cobain's shoulders. The reserved singer-songwriter was now the face of popular music. Cobain's addiction to heroin and tumultuous relationship with fellow rock star Courtney Love brought new meaning to the dark and honest lyrics fans found themselves drawn to, recalls Soulsby. I think his raw honesty, I think that sense that you were genuinely listening to the psychological conflicts of an individual, I think that's where it's really at. And I think that's very uncommon. What we actually see with most artists is you write a song, then you have to pretend it has meaning the hundredth time you've sung it, the two hundredth time you've sung it. It has to be a broad sentiment that other people can sing. On April 8th, 1994, Kurt Cobain's body was discovered at his Seattle home. He was dead by suicide at age 27. Cobain's death would rock the music world. Still, Urge Overkill's Roser calls watching Nirvana in the weeks following Nevermind's release the greatest experience of his life. It brings to mind brighter memories of a three-piece band from Aberdeen, Washington that conquered the world. We played in Rome, and that by that time, um, they had been... After the Rome show, we sort of found out that they had been, uh, they had overtaken Michael Jackson for the number one spot on Billboard. It, it went from like, maybe we'll sell as many records as Sonic Youth, maybe, till to number one on Billboard in a matter of months. And it was a big celebration. I remember they all went out on uh, scooters. And in Rome, you can rent these scooters and go out. And they, they went out with all their crew and, and all that. They were out on those after the show. They were out all night on these. And, you know, it was this big triumphant moment. And I remember Kurt saying, that's literally the most, the most fun I've ever had in my life. Thank you for listening to CLE Rocks. For more episodes, check out our page on Acast, Apple, Spotify, and other platforms. I'm Troy L. Smith. Until next time.